Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 490. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Dr. Emmanuel Nusiri. Emmanuel is the program leader for the social sciences at the African Leadership College in Mauritius, where he teaches courses in feminist economics, environmental politics, and research methods. He holds a PhD from St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford, and he has teaching and research experience from Africa, Europe, and the United States. In this conversation, we discuss his teaching philosophy and how he actively fosters debate and meaningful conversation in the classroom. We look at how he establishes a co-learning, co-sharing, and knowledge co-creation space between himself and his students. A really insightful interview. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating, and, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Professor Emmanuel Nusiri, it's great pleasure to have you on my show. I must say I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we met, only recently, because you're going to be the first person I've had on my podcast to talk about the quality, the use of conversation in teaching. In your own words, Emmanuel, how would you like to describe yourself? Uh, first, uh, thank you, Minter. It's uh... I'm excited to be here, and um, how would I like to describe myself? Um, a teacher who is happy to step into the classroom to learn from the students. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, if that sounds like um, as though those two things are not um, compatible, well, that's really what I do. I, I, I step into the classroom knowing that okay, there's something I got to give, but absolutely absolutely believing that there's also something i receive from my students in every place where i have taught in europe in the us in africa so yeah and that's it that that's that's how i describe myself yeah nice well it makes me think of how sometimes you can learn from a a three-year-old child who says daddy why does this happen like this and you look at the child and say not a good question darn it <laughs> Excuse me. So, Emmanuel, um, explain to us a, where you are teaching and, and a little bit how you've got to where you've got to. Okay. So, presently, I'm a faculty with um, the African Leadership University. Um, the, the, it's, it's, it's a new university. We are barely about uh, 10 years old. There's a campus in Mauritius where I teach. There's another campus in um, Kigali, um, our second campus, and then um, the African Leadership University belongs to a much broader organization called African Leadership Group or African Leadership International, where we run um, other capacity building programs out of Nairobi, out of South Africa, um, and, 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 and out of Silicon Valley, would you believe it? We now have a campus on, at, at, in uh, California in Silicon Valley, but I'm a social science faculty. So I am the program leader for the social science degree program. 
Uh, degree programs in Mauritius, we run them in partnership with the Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. Uh, so, so, so the campus in Mauritius is a transnational campus. The campus in Kigali is a standalone campus, but in Mauritius, campus where it belongs is a transnational campus. So uh, because of that, we had, we, we, we had developed a unique learning style where um, the, the, the partner faculties in Scotland, they develop the uh, PowerPoint slides and the PowerPoint slides are put on Blackboard, an online um, system for our students where they can go in before classes, they study the uh, slides online and the materials. And then when we come together in the classroom in Mauritius, we, we help our students to then contextualize their learning, you know, uh, from a European context to within first an African context and then a global context because we are in a global village, right? So it's not just contextualizing to the African context, but also contextualizing to the global context. I've been with ALU now for four years. Um, how did I get there? How did I get to ALU um, in Mauritius, African Leadership University? Um, when I finished up my uh, PhD in England, I, I moved to the US. This was uh, 13 years ago, I moved to the US. And, and why, did you, why did you move to the US? Oh, interesting question. I moved to the U.S. because I got married and my wife was studying in the U.S. at the time. Um, she's Cameroonian like me, but she was studying in the U.S. at the time. So when we got married here in the U.S., I moved to join her uh, so she could finish her PhD studies. In the meantime, I got a job. I mean, I moved to the U.S., I have my PhD, so I did get a job. I got a job um, at the University of Illinois. Uh, Urbana-Champaign. Um, I got a job in the geography department. It was part research, it was part uh, teaching on um, governance, natural resources, climate change. These are the areas that I work on. Uh, um, environmental policy and environmental politics also are areas that I work on. So um, I got the Postdoc year, I um, I did that. Um, I was in Germany for two years on another postdoc at the University of Potsdam in Germany. I lived in Berlin, beautiful place, lovely place. Um, I didn't do any teaching there, but when 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 I when that I I, I came out of that and I was looking for my next uh, challenge, I I thought to myself at that point in time that. Um, it will be good to, to, to have a position in Africa. I thought about the position in my country, Cameroon, um, thought about the position in other African countries. Why not Nigeria? Why not Ghana? Why not Kenya? I mean, I, I have learned so much, got plenty of experience. It would be great to, to, at that time I was thinking, hey, it'd be great to go work with young people in Africa to pass across my learning. So it's not just about brain drain, it's brain gain. So I, all these were there. And then it occurred to me that, hey, why not think about the African Leadership University? At that time, they were still running the African Leadership Academy in South Africa, a high school program. But I had heard that they were starting up a university in Mauritius. So I looked it up, uh, 2015, 2016, uh, the very first batch of students We've been admitted in 2015. 
And I was mulling that because, of course, it would mean moving over to Mauritius and all of that. But I, I finally decided to give it a go in 2017. That you know, let me give this a go. You know, um, why was the ALU attractive to me more than maybe going back to Cameroon or Nigeria was that this was a Pan-African university bringing students from all across Africa, from Cairo to Cape Town. You know, and I thought, wow, young people, you know, coming from across Africa are going to teach in such a place. I, I had a feeling it would be it would be very good for me. I had a feeling it would be very rewarding. So I gave it a go in 2017 and um, August 2018, exactly four years ago, August 2018, I moved to Mauritius to 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 lead the uh, social the social science program there. And yeah, so that's my journey. Uh, that's yeah, and and it's been rewarding. So Emmanuel, I I have to think that you obviously had a Cameroonian background. You had the UK. A background in terms of education and how you learned, yes. And and now you've got the Mauritius story, you've got the ALU story, in general, and you've had the opportunity to explore so many different cultures. I'm wondering, what is the teaching, or the mission, or the the style of transmission? Sorry, the style of transmission that you feel is is most effective having seen so many different things okay so um i'd be humble to say perhaps i won't speak so much to most effective but speak a lot to uh, most enriching yeah perhaps speak a lot to most enriching and then um i'll start from my my own personal experience um i did my high school in nigeria um, I did some of my university in Nigeria, then I moved over to Cameroon. I, I, I finished up in Cameroon. I got my undergraduate degree uh, from Cameroon, worked a little before I moved to England. And um, I did my master's at Cambridge and I did my PhD at Oxford. And in all my years of learning, I, I, I was the sort of learner, first and foremost, who always wanted to understand what I was taught. So I wasn't the sort of learner that wanted to just um, read what I've taught, store it in my head, and just go to the exam and give it out. Um, a typical example I give um, to my students is at high school, I did some um, physics. And in physics, there are this equation of motion in physics. And you can just know the equation. You can just know the equation, get into a physics exam, use the equation and solve the questions. But I have this thing where whenever I'm in a physics test or exam, I, I would actually derive the equation every time. I would derive them every time from first principles because I understood the first principles and I appreciated them. So I, I never bothered to say, hey, this is the equation of motion. Let me just... I understood the first principles. From first principles, I would go to the equation and use the equation and solve the problems in front of me. You know? So I've always had this thing about, I really want to know. I really want to learn, you know? So, but I would say that from high school in Nigeria to university, um, even to Cambridge, 
and Oxford, there was that pressure of not just about you want to know, you want to like, you need to recall, you need to know this stuff and you need to recall. And of course, the lectures were lectures. The teachers would come into class, be it high school, and the teachers would impact learning, knowledge, right? They would give it to us. Um, at university, especially at the master's level, it was a little better at the master's level, we would have conversations. I was, I was in an um, international class uh, for my master's, and our professors would come, and because we came from different countries, the US and um, Europe, African countries, the, the professors would try to get us involved in the conversation, you know? But it, 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 it was um, a conversation to get us going with the syllabus, with the curriculum. When we're doing our PhD, it was the same. Professors would try to get us involved in the conversation. So from there, I, I was persuaded that you could take this one step further, where it's not, just a, it's not just a conversation because of the subject matter, but truly a conversation because um, the students really do have something to say, really do have something to contribute. I mean, I saw that in the master's class, in the PhD class, that, hey, yeah, we're at a point where we do have something, 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 um, what saying something significant to bring into the discussions. So from there, there was that persuasion that, hey, this is, this is, this is a good way. When I was then teaching in the UK and then I came to the US, um, I wouldn't say I had the opportunity to have that kind of enriched conversations in the classroom. It wasn't that I didn't try, but I'll be honest to say, I was just starting out to do that, you know? So even from my own perspective, I was learning to do it at those points. It was when I got to ALU in Mauritius that I would say it really matured. Partly that I was at, I was at an institution that prides itself as an innovative institution, that prides itself as being at the leading edge of learning and where learning is going that spoke so much about we don't want to be traditional you know so we're in partnership with a foreign institution Glasgow Caledonian University uh, students have to do some um, um, pre-work for themselves then they come into the classroom and for me I saw that as wow this is great if the students have done some pre-work some better than others but, of course. But, but, but I would say that every time we came into class, at least the majority of students have at least looked at the pre-work. Once in a while, you've got some students, well, they're students, right, who've not looked at the pre-work at all. But There's, They're usually sitting in the back of the classroom, looking down at their shoes <laughs> or trying to say, I hope he doesn't call me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, so I go there and I'm like, you know what? These are students coming from different parts of Africa. I'm going to go with conversations in the classroom. There's a syllabus, I've got the PowerPoint, but I'm going to go with conversations in the classroom. Now, when I first got to the ALU, our periods were for three hours straight. So every module, you need to have lectures of three hours a week. and would have three hours straight with the students, but there's a break in between, of course. So you've got like 
an hour, 20 minutes, or an hour, 15 minutes, then you take a break, then you've got the next, the next bit to, to finish up. So, so I developed this idea that, you know what, the first part of the three hours, I'm going to use it in conversation. And then when we go on break and we come back for the second part, we can look at our notes, our PowerPoint. We can go there. I say when I first got to ALU because later on, I was able to split the, the periods per week into two periods. So a first period of one hour, 30 minutes, and then the next day or later in the day or the next day or two days after, we'll do another one hour, 30 minutes. But I still followed the idea that, hey, the first period, let's talk. And that the second period, we can look at the PowerPoints and the notes together. But the first period, let's talk. We come from different African countries. and We are at an age where we can articulate ourselves very well. You know, fortunately, it's not elementary school. It's university. Uh, senior teenagers, right? 17, 18, 19, and some early young adults, 20, 21, but that we can talk. These are young Africans who've got something to say about culture and society. You know, it's a module I taught, but culture and society, we all come from rich cultures. So we've got something to say about culture and society. These are young Africans that have got something to say about um, feminist economics because they've got moms, they've got sisters, uh, some were females, you know, so they've got something to say about issues around care work, you know, they've got something to say about feminist economics. They've got something to say about environmental politics. This was another course I taught, but they've got something to say about it. They come from countries that are um, taking steps to conserve their biodiversity, they're taking steps and doing things on um, climate change. These are young people who are curious, who read, who watch the television, who watch documentaries, who belong to NGOs as volunteers. I met young people like this when I got to ALU. They were, you know. So they've got something to say. And they come from different experiences and backgrounds and perspectives. So I have something to learn not just something to teach, but also something to learn from them. So, Emmanuel, I, I, I have this feeling that, and that is something I talk about, is that in order to have a rich conversation, you do need to have knowledge. Otherwise, it might just be what I feel. Because as a child, I felt unhappy, and I'm going to express as knowledge, something that's just a feeling, not backed up by any reading or any database or or deeper culture. And and so when when you engage in this, to what extent is knowledge something that's important as a basis for conversation? Excellent. It's 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 um it's very foundational. Um, like I said earlier about how I, in the UK, when I taught in the UK and um, when I taught in the US, I, I did try to have conversations, but like I said, I, I approached them cautiously. I approached them um, 
it's very humble to do that because of this belief of this uh, issue of um, am I am I certain that I would not drift off into irrelevancies? Am I certain I would maintain a steady keel? And not just for myself, but for the students who get engaged in the conversation such that at the end of the period, the students don't go away thinking, yeah, I had a good time, we talked, but I'm not sure I learned anything. You know, you can have conversations where people don't learn anything. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I had a good time, but so what? Yeah, but so what? So, 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 so I needed to be humble in, in, in uh, trying to do this. But by the time I got to ALU in 2018, I was more confident, partly because um, in my field that I had worked in, in research and in teaching, environmental conservation, in management, uh, um, environmental policy, I, I, I had, I had, I had about, well, in terms of my work experience, I had about 15 years of work experience behind me already, 15, 16 years of work experiences behind me. In terms of my academic uh, pedigree, I, 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 had, I had worked in very, very, um, I had worked in projects. I had published, I had worked with experts in the field that uh, are some of the top experts in the field. By the time I got to ALU, so by the time I got to ALU, uh, um, there was a certain degree of of uh, further confidence in me that I know what I am talking about. One and two, I am able to I am able to inspire. I was sure I would be able to inspire trust in the students I'm working with that I know what I am talking about. Um, when I started having the conversations at ALD, the first class that I had and I was doing the conversation thing, yeah, there were students who were a bit suspicious, uncomfortable with it. They were like, where is he really going? You know, but the fact that we could use the first part of the period to have the conversation, then the second part to look at the material so after a couple of weeks, when they saw that every time we have a conversation, I'm able to steer the conversation in a way where, whereby when we come to the material, they were able to see the connection between the conversations, the conversations we've just had and the learning material itself. They were able to see the connection. This took some weeks. This was not the first two or three weeks. In fact, in fact, I'll probably say that first term. I'll probably say it took a whole term, not just some weeks. I'll probably say it took a whole term, you know, where at the end of the term, when we were doing um, some of the revisions, we were able to see that, yeah, the conversations, you know, led to a better understanding of the syllabus, of the curriculum, each, each, each time. And when they had done their assignments and they had start for their exams, they came out of it not feeling they were cheated somehow. They came out of it not feeling they didn't learn anything, you see. So it got better in the second term. This time around, there was an eagerness to participate 
in the conversations than in the first. In the first time, they were really very suspicious of what I was trying to do. Even some of my peers, some of my colleagues, my faculty colleagues, I'm sure they were suspicious too, but they were like, let's watch and see what so, he's doing. So, I mean, some level that suspicion is also a reflection of the tradition of the regular way of teaching. It's like, oh, this isn't normal. This isn't how I'm taught in all the other classes. And all of a sudden, I've got this new CRE guy, Professor Nusseri, is trying to teach me through Socratic questions and 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 conversation. And and so and so there's that obvious criticism that I can imagine happening. You also have to deal with a curriculum. You have a you have a probably an exam or some form of standard understanding at the end of the year. So the question I have is within this notion of conversation and attempting to integrate the learnings of the conversation, how do you evaluate your success? Uh, do you fall on the standard test or 10 years later? the Nobel Prize winners. Excellent. So of course, the students are going to write their 10 papers, they're going to do their exams and they want to pass. And not just that, at the end of their degree, they're going to have a first class, an upper second, the lower second, a third class. And you don't want to have be having conversations and the students end up with third class and then they go home and their parents are like, why are you coming home with third class? And the students say to their parents, Oh, we had this teacher who he go drinks whiskey and comes to class and talks away the whole time. And, and we leave and we understand nothing. You see, you don't want that to happen, right? Um, again, like I said, I was fortunate that this was an institution that was willing to experiment, innovate. And um, one of the things that this institution placed a lot of emphasis on was on good collaborative working relationships between faculty and students. So the um, cafeteria where we would go have our lunch, our breakfast, our lunch, our dinner, was a cafeteria that was for both uh, staff and students, both faculty and students. And we all have to stand on the queue, like the students and all that. There was no separation between the, the faculty area and the students area so, so that after class, faculty and students continue to engage after class. So one of the things that I observed that was so helpful with conversations in the class was then that the students were eager to continue the conversations outside of class. Let's say during breakfast, if I come to campus early enough in the morning and I'm taking breakfast and they see I am uh, I'm seated at the table, they're willing to pull up a chair and come to that table and continue the conversation. During lunch, you should have two, three students who sit around outside of the cafeteria in the sun, and they're willing to continue the conversation. At dinner, for those days where I stay late on campus and I stay to dinner time, they're willing to continue the conversation. And it, it, it enabled me to be able to then point them even more to the materials that they are reading, you see. So they come to me with an aspect of the conversation in class and they say, but that other student said this and um, I thought it was like this, what do you say? And in that moment when they're able to say, that student said that, I said this, what do you say? I'm able to say to them, oh yeah, this is what I think. 
but it's not just me that thinks this way. You know, there is this expert, and this is one of your readings. And I'm able to ask the student, you know, it's one of your readings. I, I, I hope you have read that. But there's this expert, and if you read this expert's views, this expert makes these three different points. And in these three different points that this expert makes, the expert is able to blend what you heard from student A and what you heard from student B, that, don't, that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, hmm. being able to connect the dots. So those further conversations helped me to be able to work with the students to say, at each point in time when we're having conversations, can we connect the dots? you know, from student A to student B to student C to the expert who's published a book or who's published an article around this. I wasn't shy to say to the students, you got a view, beautiful, but you're not the expert. I like your view, I learned from your view, but you're not the expert. What makes it that you're not the expert is that you got just one view, you've got just a single story. You know, but the expert has been able to look at this more comprehensively. So it's 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 you coming to the expert and having that exchange. And I am the I'm the middle person in this sort of learning universe where there is you, there is the expert, there is me. You know, it's 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 about co-learning from me and you and the expert. I have yeah. to imagine, Emmanuel, that in that process, as you say, as the semester gets along, things gel. At the end, everybody is doing more of their pre-reading than at the beginning. I mean, I was a student, I've taught, I've seen how it rolls. But then all of a sudden you realize the value of doing the pre-reading and how it actually enriches, as opposed to being effective, it enriches the learning experience. Yes, absolutely. And for the students, by the end of term, they are, they are able to look at the readings and the materials absolutely without fear. Because, because at the start of term, they look at what they, they have to read, like something that is out there something that this, 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 this researcher has done in, in Germany or this person has done in the Philippines, something that is far away from their lived experience. But by the time we get to the end of the class, in my classroom, they're able to see that actually what the expert is talking about is my lived experience, but seen from the lens of another person like me in the Philippines. Another young person like me in the Philippines that is wondering, why do I have to respect these cultural values? Why are some things a taboo? You know, they begin to see that this person might have done this work in the Philippines, but the young people in the Philippines, they're just like you. Curious, just like you. Same questions, just like you wanting to break the rules the same way you would want to break the rules 
And that's what this person is talking about. So they 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 are able to you know have a a a, a deeper appreciation for the text. You know, I mean, I've got students who um, have graduated, have left the institution, and they write back to me to say, "Oh, um, I did not store some of these texts that we used, and they really spoke to me." And uh, please, can you um, email them to me? Undergraduate students who have not graduated who are saying this to me? I whenever I see those emails, I am I I I feel. I feel proud when I see those emails from students who graduated who are saying, you know, that text, those text, because there's 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 a recognition. I I would tell you when I probably finish my undergrad, I would I'll, I'll be honest, I I don't think I really went back to 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 to, to, to any of my faculty to say that stuff we read. Please, I want to keep a copy, you know, um, of it because. I didn't have that kind of a relationship with the materials that we used when I was an undergrad. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. Well, one thing I did, I didn't go back like you uh, were saying about going to get the material, but I did go back to thank the professors that moved me. So that's something I, anyone who's listening, I encourage to do. Think about the teachers and professors in your life that made an impact. So Emmanuel, what I'd like to do now is talk about this conversation piece. How do you set it up and how do you make it safe for the journey to continue. Because as you know fully, conversations A, have a chance or or a life of their own. People today take issue with so many things, it can become very difficult. If you have to be the custodian of everybody's feelings all the time, because you're a university and, and, and parents will come bashing you if their child feels that they got molested or damaged because someone else, if it wasn't you, who spoke. So talk us through that process. Great. So um, the ability to, 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 to hold court in a classroom is not something that a person is born with. Um, it's something that you have to grow in. Um, I say that to, to, to caution everyone that would want to do um, conversations in the classroom because um, conversations can go astray. Um, conversations can, uh, can trigger uh, uh, some students and it can produce angry students sometimes. Uh, sometimes um, a student might feel that um, another student has been too uh, harsh on them and may want to withdraw into themselves and not continue in conversation, not just in that, in that hour when you're having that class, but in other weeks, 
may not want to chip in anymore. You know, I know there were um, a few experiences like that in my classroom. Uh, there was one that was really very sharp where a student was making a point and another student said something like, oh, you're only holding that point of view because you're local. You know, as in you're not sophisticated. You know, that's why you're holding that point of view. And the um, student that 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 uh, had that remark, it really hurt her very deeply. You could see that immediately in the classroom. Um, she kept quiet. She didn't want to contribute um, anymore. And I had to I had to have an office hour with those students differently. Separately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, separately with the first one that said, you don't have that, you're having that view because you are not sophisticated. And you have to have office hour with that student to say, um, in the classroom, we really have to speak with some degree of respect for one another. You know, we are all here and now. That student that you said is unsophisticated is doing the same undergraduate program like you is going to have the same degree like you so at this point in time in the universe of learning you're on the same pedestal at this point in time and the other student that felt hot i needed to have um, office hours too and say hey i have i have addressed this you will not be disrespected again in my classroom you can be sure about that. You'll not be disrespected again in my classroom. So um, this has happened. Your your peer might come and apologize to you. Um, she might not. I don't. I can't enforce that. But in my classroom, know that no one will disrespect you. Like what has happened. And then in the classroom, you know, I'm able to address this sort of um, conversation. Wanted to go astray or some students wanted to speak on top of other students or some students feeling aggrieved because of a point of view and sometimes my being able to address it was not really trying to say oh we will never we will never feel hurt in the classroom but sometimes it was actually saying hey this is this is this is this is a microcosm of the bigger world you know i once said to a student imagine yourself in parliament and you're making this point for your party. What do you think the others on the other party are gonna do? You know, um, if they are very nice people, they might make um, paper airplanes and throw the paper airplanes <laughs> at you. You know, if they're not very nice people, they might pick up chairs and want to do some other things with those chairs, right? But but being 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 um, not shying away from observing the different sort of emotions and dynamics that conversation can play and not shying away from 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 addressing it of course it 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 means at some point um yes it's a co-learning space but it means at some point the students themselves have to recognize you as the captain in the classroom not master leader know it all but a team, you know, they have to be able to respect that, you know, they have someone that we can 
trusts, someone that would defend everyone equally. It makes me think of the idea of a debate where in the formal method of a debate, there's a standard, how long you can speak, when you can rhetoric and, and rebut different ways and the amount of time you have and so on. And at, in, in a very free-flowing way, you are the controller somehow all the same. And I can imagine that many, many of the students would like to speak at you or through you. They might stand up. I don't know if they stand up when they speak, but they talk at you, not necessarily at the other student. And then other times they're talking at the student and you'd like, uh, uh, let's reel this back in because they're getting one-to-one -one on this and very mm. personal. And you're like, wait a second, let me just put this piece of spice into the conversation because it can get very quickly personal and irate. And even if I have knowledge, I, I can, and I think I might have self-control. I just, it, it overtakes me. Oh, yes. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's great that you bring up this point about, you know, uh, thinking about a debate. I'll admit that I'd never, I've never thought of it from that perspective. And probably because um, I was a debater in high school, <laughs> I think that 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 also helps. And of course, I, I, I've been somebody that um, all through my life uh, from the home that I grew up in, um, I've, I, I, I enjoy the talk shows. And um, in fact, when I uh, came to the US, one of the talk shows back then, when I came to the US was um, Charlie Rose. Oh yeah, um, I I I I so admired his 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 ability to 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 control the conversation because sometimes um, he has just one guest, but sometimes he has two or three guests, and 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 I think back to to all that uh, to the debate and the Charlie Roses of this world, and think back to the classroom and the ability to say to one student, okay, I hear you, I hear what you're saying but uphold that thought. You know, those things that we do in the class, in, in, in the classroom during the conversation itself, you know, to actually manage the conversation, you know. So I'm able to say to a student, I hear you hold that thought, I will come back to you. So I don't want you to lose that train of thought, I'll come back to you, but I think that train of thought, uh, just let the conversation get to the next phase. In 10 minutes, you would see how your train of thought will come back in. And, being truthful to my word to go back to that student to say, okay, I told you I was going to come back to you. Now I've come back to you. And at the same time, in the classroom, to be able to say to another student, um, you see, that train of thought that you are espousing there, it's like the Luddites, you know, in the 1800 in the UK, who said technology was totally dangerous and they went about, wanted, you know, that train of thought is very similar to what, you know, to 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 something that came up in the 18 hundred. So 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 it's it's your original thought, but we are human, and uh, um, several members of the human family sometimes have the same kind of thought all at the same time. That is original to them, but it's actually shared by many. So that thought, there have been people that shared that kind of thinking, and you know they they progress with it, and it took us into this direction. And to say to another student, I'll say this right here. 
you have been speaking and speaking and speaking. You know, let others speak. You know, to just say something as simple as that, that, oh, you've been, you know, we've heard so much. Let others, you know, be able to chip in. And of course, to encourage those at that particular moment in class, because sometimes a student comes and maybe they miss breakfast and, you know, they're a bit hungry and they're a bit low in spirits and they don't really want to get in the groove for the talk. And sometimes we want to look at the student and say, hey, uh, Tony, what's up today? Um, other days, you're very animated and all that. And make a light joke out of it. I'm sure you miss breakfast, Tony. I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, I think I've got like a candy in my bag. Would that help? You know, being able to draw them out in that kind of way. That ability to manage the conversation itself. I think, you know, um, having been a debater, having watched tons and tons of um, talk shows, you know, one lens. But there must be that capacity to manage conversations, to manage conflict, to manage mistrust. And ultimately, there must be that capacity to deliver, you know, for everyone at the end of the day. It's very powerful what you're describing for me. First of all, as a general process, you don't succeed right away. This is something that is built over a certain amount of time. Of course, you're a professor, you have your experience, your confidence, but you've got a new class and they come in with their own critical thinking and sense of entitlement at times. And of course, their experience, their knowledge, maybe they've done the pre-reading. And then over time, you eventually create this space where you are enabling conversation. I have two, two questions now. One is, to what extent is class participation part of the grade? And, and as a motivational technique, how much does that stimulate, create conflict? Oh, I got to speak more and all that. And then two, I really need to get into this notion of integration. I call it integration. And the reference I, I'm thinking of is psychedelic assisted therapy, where people do a trip, take some LSD or ketamine or psilocybin, and then in certain countries or spaces, states, it's, it's legal. And at the end of this weird shit that just happened, let's call it a conversation, we learn from it. So let's start with this notion of of managing the grade aspect of conversation and how you try to sort of parse through the difference between the, the student who speaks a lot, quality of what they speak, and the grade for participation. All right. Um, you said something yet that is profound about participation. So um, at ALU, uh, part of the model is that we are encouraged to use uh, project-based learning, where we are encouraged to always, every term, every course, put our students into groups and let them work through a problem together so that they can have what we call a peer-to-peer -peer 
learning together. But beyond just peer-to-peer, uh, uh, -peer, there's also this thing about the students being able to work as a team. So we, we, we try to ensure that by the time our students spend uh, three, four, five, uh, three or four years with us, they are good team players and they understand the strengths of working in teams and they develop the soft skills that come about in working in teams. So that institutional culture that we, we try to build in our students across all the modules they do and across all their learning, I think that in itself sort of provide a, a um, what do I call this now? Sort of provide, you know, that, that, that background, that space for participation in the classroom. Because they come into an ALU, they know that ALU has a certain model to learning. While they're applying for ALU, they go through this thing where they have to write essays and all that about the ALU model and all of that. So they already come in knowing that this is, this is this kind of institution. It's an institution that promotes engagement. It's an institution that promotes participation. So, so, so that 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 in itself that helps, right? And then, of course, then you are thinking about, hey, it's co-learning. We're learning from one another, but the uh, students have these targets that they have to meet. And for now, the targets are the 10 papers and the exams, you know? So, so yes, it's an exam, but you're looking at it as a target and you are captain, coach or mentor, helping them such that when they get to that point where they have to deliver an output to meet that target, they're well able to deliver that output to meet that target. So. The first part of the class or the first period, we have conversations, but the second part of the class, we look at the material. So we look at the target that then has to be met. And unfortunately, the 10 papers they have to write, we're able to say to them, hey, these are the 10 papers you have to write by week six or week nine. This is the question you've got to answer by then. You know, so the students, like in every other um, higher institution, they have the curriculum, they have the syllabus. You know, they've got they've got it all. The learning objectives, you know, the the materials per week, and 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 all that. And we're able to, you know, use that to say there are targets that we have to meet. Yes, we're co-learning. From one another, but we will be assessed. And then there are these targets that we have to meet, and we have to put ourselves in position to deliver on those targets. And because we then have that space where the conversation can continue out of the classroom, when the students themselves are now working on their on their term paper, they're preparing for their exams, you know, there are these questions that they are thinking about that they've seen in the text, they're able to ask questions around that. They're able to come and ask me and say, so for this module, uh, if I were to respond to this question, uh, rather than use the example I saw 
in the textbook. If I were to use an example from my local community, would it pass? You know, if I were to use an example from my community. And I'll be honest with you that most times I tell my students, um, use an example from a text and use an example from your community. Use an example from a text to convince the examiner, the external examiner, that you did read the text. So what, I, what I'm hearing from you, Manuel, is that the integration process is as much informal in the in-between moments of the class as it is in the second installment of the class after the conversation. It feels for me that these informal moments are extremely important. Absolutely. Um, I would, I, yes, yes. Absolutely, they are. Uh, those informal moments, um, they help you, in many cases, they help you round off conversations you had to suspend yeah. because you need to move to the next item. Hold that thought. <laughs> yes, hold that thought. So, so, so those moments out of the classroom, they help you take the conversations to natural conclusions, you know, because those informal moments, often they are continuing conversations that you had in the classroom. Sometimes it's one-on-one. -on -one. A student comes to you. Sometimes it's a group of three or four of them who were really going at one another in the classroom. And you're like, guys, we need to really move on. And they're able to come to you together. That group of three or four that were having a go at one another, they come to you at lunch or at dinner or the next day at breakfast, that group of three or four. Oh, you're there. Okay. Yes. We said this in the classroom and you didn't let us finish. So, <laughs> Well, I, I have to feel that real learning happens through mistakes. Real learning happens through challenge and difficulty. If everything were easy, and it feels like silicon. You mentioned Silicon Valley at the beginning. It just sort of rolls off your back. And, and having these crispier, difficult textural moments are actually what it's all about. And, and to circle back on, on this ALU culture of experimentation, leadership in learning, it also means knowing how to manage failure. Because if you want to experiment, then you know you need to fuck up sometimes. And, and just a final word, a word from you, Emmanuel, on how do you manage failure? Uh, because, you know, you still have, as we say in French, les comptes à rendre. You still have to get the bills to be paid at the end of the day. Yes. Um, I remember one of the classes... I had, and it was a class on international trade. Yeah, that was that was one of the things we we're doing in that class, international trade, uh, globalization. Um, I remember that class because that particular class for me was a fail. It was a fail in that um, how I started the class was I came in and I showed the students, it was a newsreel on YouTube of, um, 
Kenya Airways, they had just had uh, their flight, I think direct flight from Nairobi to New York approved. And there was a lot of fanfare around that, I think. And we're talking about the uh, flower industry from Kenya. And I sort of came into that class with the assumption that all my students should know about the flower industry in Kenya. You know, I sort of, sort of, I don't know why I thought that way that, oh, they will all know about the flower industry in Kenya. It's something that is really popular and something that is really great. So this news item should be an exciting one because these flowers have to get to New York and all that. And, and, and we went through this, uh, I went through these videos and then I went into the conversation by trying to ask some questions around uh, uh, flower industry and Kenya and all that. And lo and behold, only very few students had a clue. The majority of students were a bit blank. And I didn't quickly catch on. I didn't, I didn't quickly catch on that uh, there's something going on here. So it was, I think it was almost 30 minutes into the class. And I think one of the students sort of blotted it out. Something like, you know, they know nothing about this thing I'm talking about. <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> not the I'm talking about, and I've just been going on and on and on, and and it it was um it was a fail. I I I had to try and uh, I had to recover. But first, I had to admit to my students that um um it was a fail because that student blotted out, and some other students felt that student was rude, and then it became this whole other thing about respect and all that. And I had to let my students do that. It was it was a fail on 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 my part, you know. And of course, I learned um, from that. Sometimes I would then pretest some of the issues I would want to raise in the classroom before we get to the classroom. I would then pretest them in those moments when I'm having conversations with students outside of the classroom. You know, I would pretest things before I then take them into the classroom. But that was something I did learn from a fail. You know, and I had to admit it to my students and, 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 and apologize to some of them. You know, um, on the part of the students, um, sometimes, you know, we've gone through the term and at the end of the term, you know, you have conversations and you, you, you motivate and you coach and all that. And at the end of the term, a student comes and says something like, I want to withdraw from the module because I think this module has just been too difficult and all that. And um, you feel as a professor, as a faculty, you feel a bit guilty. You think you failed that student. That's why they don't think they can make it through this. And then you sit and have a debrief with that student and, um, you know, to learn what is happening. You want to drop this. Um, can I help at this point? What's going on? And uh, thankfully, we have a culture where we 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 do get formal um, feedback, where um, students have these things they have to feel for feedback on their modules and all that. So we learn as 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 we go. So um, on the part of a student, when a student says, "I I want to step back from this," um, we're able to debrief with our student as faculty, learn from them what's going on. If it's a personal personal matter that's going on with them, or if it's the learning style that they are having some kind of a difficulty with. Uh, I know for one student, I've had to, 
I've had to do a lot more um, office hours with that one student because the 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 conversational style was a bit um was a bit too too um what's failed me probably too rapid for the students because it's a conversation there's a lot there's sort of like a lot going on and a lot you sort of have to uh, process yeah process while it's happening and um, i had to have some more um, office hours where we then focused more on the readings the fundamental readings for the module uh, uh, to help that student out you know, in that sense, because when you're having a conversation, even if you don't admit it, sometimes there are assumptions you bring in having that conversation about where everybody is at to be able to participate in that conversation. And then you come across a student that is not really at that place with respect to uh, uh, things that you might consider fundamental issues, but maybe because of upbringing or society or culture, they're not really there yet with that so there are these other um um provisions that you then have to make so, so i I, I have a so in wrap up because we're gonna finish this wonderful conversation it, it sounds like knowledge isn't everything because even if they've all pre-read they still have their emotional or learning differences that they bring into it the the second thing I I picked up is a combination of three things from you, Emmanuel. First is a certain humility that you're always willing to learn from the people who are having the conversation, your students. But a second of all is a sense of authority because you know your shit, you've done the reading, and the third thing is a level of confidence, a confidence in yourself and a confidence in the process. And probably the last thing is a culture that allows for the fuck up, the ability to learn from mistakes. Because if you didn't have that indulgence from your superiors and supporting you, uh, then it could be deeply challenging. I, I I feel like I need to digest and integrate a lot of things you said. I, I um, I was speaking with someone recently, and uh, we were talking about how uh, the learning is is different, and and um, and the Socratic methods, and and one of the things he said is I try to use timely events because that catches us. This is the news, but make them timeless in the learning. So, with that, I need to thank Natalia for introducing us. Spasiba Bolshoi, Natalia. And uh, how can anybody track you down, Emmanuel, or at least maybe read your writings, maybe a, come and join you at the ALU? What are the best ways to, what, what would you like to have as, as things to do for anyone who's listening? Um, I have a LinkedIn page, obviously. So uh, you can always go to my LinkedIn page. I am, I am the only Emmanuel Nusiri in the world. I can assure you of that. Oh, so, you and I share something in common. Minter Dial and Emmanuel Nussieri. Yeah, I can assure you of that. Yeah. So uh, you go to LinkedIn, Emmanuel Nussieri. 
you see my LinkedIn page and uh, through my LinkedIn page, I am I'm often on top of things on my LinkedIn page. So you get in touch with me via my LinkedIn page, I will respond. And of course, um, for ALU, we have um, a fantastic website. Uh, you can look at our website. You can Google something called the ALU Learning Strategy, ALU model, and uh, you see some interesting stuff there. And then lastly, I would say you can also look at something called Future First ALU. Future First ALU is an initiative uh, between myself and the students that I work with on young people and how to look to the future. And that again, it's, um, it's via the ALU website, but where you put Future First ALU on Google, it takes you in there. And that's also one space where you can engage with me. So these are spaces where we can engage. Fabulous. Well, I will make it easy for anyone who wishes to go in the show notes because I'll find those links and put them in there. Emmanuel, what a wonderful conversation. Huge thank you. Thank you, Minta. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdialogue. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Mm-hmm.
convinced man Put me to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.